Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts from the Theopolis Institute in the States to talk about the book of Daniel. And Alistair, today we're going to try and deal with Daniel chapter 8. Fascinating chapter. What did we see last time in chapter 7? Chapter 7 was the beginning of the more visionary section of the book. So the main historical section of the book runs from chapters 1 to 6. And then for the second half of the book, we have a series of visions. Now, these visions come from various points in the period of Daniel's ministry and his life, and they don't necessarily all occur after the events of chapter six. So it's important to bear that in mind when reading through this. Things that we've already read in the historical section happen after some of these visions. This particular section of the book is fleshing out principles that we've already seen. So in chapter two, we had a succession of four different empires. In chapter seven, we had a similar succession of empires described in the form of four different beasts, not just four different parts of an image as in chapter four, in in chapter two, but now we have a series of different beasts. And that imagery is unpacked even further in the chapters that follow, such as chapter eight. What actually happens in chapter eight? In chapter eight, we have a vision by Susa by the Ulai Canal. And as we go through the chapter, we'll see this conflict between a ram and a goat. And within that, there is this greater conflict between two empires represented. And it's a premonition of what's going to occur at the downfall of the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire. Why does chapter eight return us to Hebrew? Yes, it's a good question. The main bulk of the book, or well, from chapter two to chapter seven, has a chiastic form and it's in Aramaic. And so now we've returned to Hebrew, which is interesting. could speculate a bit about it, but I don't know. It's easier, easier to speculate about why we have the Aramaic than why we return to the Hebrew at this particular point. Is chapter eight chiastic? And probably is, but um, I haven't studied it enough to have a, a sure position on it. Okay, what's the significance of the fact that Daniel has this vision in, is it Shushan and Susa and the Ulai Canal? What's going on there? So this would be the focus of the Persian Empire. We can see the significance of Susa within the story of Esther, of course. And this is a sign of the location where power of Medo-Persia lies and where it will be defeated. So this is a significant location. Also, we've seen at various points in scripture and here, I think, as well, the importance of visions next to rivers. We'll have a similar vision next to a river in um, chapters that follow. Now, we talked about the ram and the goat, but what's the significance of the ram and goat in this chapter? So the ram and goat are not just a ram and goat as such. The ram is described as having two horns, and then the horns are described relative to each other. And then the goat is described in a number of different ways. It's a male goat, it has a conspicuous horn, and then it's divided. And so it seems that these two creatures represent similar things to the beasts in chapter seven, and then the different images of the kingdoms in chapter two. So first of all, the ram has two, two aspects to it. So it has these two horns and they arise in a sequence and one becomes higher than the other. That would seem to represent the kingdom of Medo-Persia 
where the Persian part of this alliance becomes the dominant one and really takes over from the median part of the kingdom. Now, we've seen that represented in the bear that's lifted up on one side, and then also in the two-sidedness of the, the silver in chapter two. So that would be the ram. As we look at the goat, we can think about the one prominent horn as associated with Alexander. And then as we go further, we can think about the way that it's divided after the death of Alexander, the Hellenistic kingdoms that arise from him. So we have the Macedonia and Greece, we have the Egypt and Perea and Judah and Arabia as another part, then we have Babylonia and the east, and then we have um, Syria. And so there's these different divisions in the, the kingdom. The Ptolemaic and the Seleucid dynasties will be the particularly important ones in the chapters that follow, particularly in chapter 11. Is there a connection here with the ram and the goat in Israel's sacrificial system? We can think about it that way. The sacrificial system has five key animals um, and three quadrupeds. And of the quadrupeds, the goat and the ram are second and third. They're the, the flock animals. Um, the herd animal is the bovine. If we go through, for instance, the list of the sacrifices for different figures, the goats represent rulers. So maybe the male goat and the association of that with the sin offering for the male, for the leader of the people, would suggest that this is a representation of a powerful ruler in some respect. The ram, likewise, it's a mature sheep, it's a flock animal. So perhaps those are the sorts of associations that we should have. The question is whether we're supposed to see this as being a direct reference to the sacrificial system, or whether there's a sort of common root bank of symbolism that they are both drawing from. Is it because uh, the Jewish people were uh, gave sacrifices for the Gentile nations using these animals? Is that, the, is that the connection? Is there something like that happening there? Perhaps. We certainly see at the end of the Book of Numbers there are a succession of sacrifices numbering 70 on the Feast of Tabernacles, which some have seen as representing the nations in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. So that's one possibility. Yeah. Who or what is the little horn that arises? We've got another little horn here. It seems to be different from the little horn that we have in chapter 7. The little horn there is associated with the fourth beast. This is beast 2 and 3. And so I would argue that the beast the horn here is associated with Antiochus Epiphanes um, and his disruption of Israel's worship and his part in the blasphemous overthrow of true worship within Israel during the 160s. Yes. yes, I mean, there are different interpretations. I was fascinated uh, to listen to your uh, interpretation when I went back to my Jordan volume and saw that he uh, has a, a fascinating view of it and thinks that the little horn fits the, the succession of Herods and the Judaizers associated. But I think he thinks, am I right in correcting the removing that he thinks that Antiochus is a sort of foreshadow or, or shadow type? What's your response yes. to that? Yes, I think his reading depends upon seeing the division of the kingdom as four successive phases of the kingdom after Alexander. So you move on to Hellenistic Rome, and then out of that arise the Herods. And I don't think that that's convincing. I think the way that the arising of the horn out of one of them um, came a little horn 
seems to suggest that the horns are existing alongside each other at the same time. So it makes more sense to me to read these as kingdoms that exist simultaneously. And so this would be the Seleucid um, Antiochus. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does the little horn oppress the saints? So he's disrupting worship. We'll see this in far more detail in chapter 11, but Antiochus prevents the worship of the people. He's part of a larger internal issue within um, Judea. So you can think about the rivalries between the two different camps of the priesthood, the Anayads and the Tobiads, and the way that Menelaus uses or kills Anias III. And then there's this conspiring and using Antiochus as someone to help win the priesthood for the Hellenistic um, faction. And so that eventually leads to a situation where the worship is, first of all, there's incredible compromise through the Hellenization of Israel's worship. And they end up having the erection of an idol within the temple. People read all about this within the books of the Maccabees, but it is a period of radical um, apostasy. And so Antiochus is a key part of that in disrupting the worship. He's been just humiliated by the Romans in, in Egypt. And so he comes back and it's like the, the man kicking the dog after he's lost some issue with his boss. And so he doesn't realize perhaps, but he's fighting against the Lord himself. And that situation involves the cessation of sacrifices for a long period of time and after a period of about three years they're restored. Yes what's the significance of the continual that's mentioned there? Yes so the question is are we referring to morning and evening sacrifice are we referring to them as both of them together or are we referring to a single one with two per day then? And it seems that there are references to the sacrifice, continual sacrifice elsewhere in the book of Daniel. And um, of course, they're not being sacrificed at this point in history. The temple's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and so there's not the regular service. But there is this reference to the time of the evening sacrifice in chapter nine. So it's seen as part of the part of the deeper reality, as it were, that even if it's not being practiced on earth, in some sense, it, it is ongoing or it, its meaning continues. And there's a cessation of the practice of the continual sacrifice here. And that is going to happen in many years after this. So we need to remember that this is around the time of, I mean, we're talking the end of the sixth, we're talking towards the second half of the, the second half of the sixth century BC. These events will take place in the second century BC. What's the significance of the 2300 evening mornings? It seems to me that that's the period of time for which the um, sacrifices were prevented. So I think it's referring to evening mornings as the evening sacrifices and the morning sacrifices, not just a a roundabout reference to days. It's days marked off by the sacrifices that topped and tailed them, as it were. And so what's the apostasy that causes desolation? I think Jordan and others have argued that that's not something that just a Gentile can do. The apostasy that's being referred to, the abomination of desolation, is something that requires some sort of involvement of the people of God themselves. And here, I think, we can 
think about the ways in which the worship of Israel is corrupted to the point of having a pagan stat idol erected within the temple, and then also the sacrifice of pigs and other things like that. That is the sort of thing I think that's being referred to here. And that's occurring not just as the action of a, a pagan monarch, it's the actions of the people of God themselves who have joined with him. Yeah, in what sense is the little horn a sort of counterfeit Daniel? Yes, it's something I'd have to think about a bit more, but we've um, got a number of ways in which these figures represent others or anticipate others. And certain events occur on a smaller scale, later occur on a, later, on a larger scale. So we have, for instance, in the 70 weeks of years, there's a jubilee that begins that, uh, seven weeks of years that precedes the rest of the 70 weeks of years. And we have a sort of abomination of desolation here. There will be a later abomination of desolation at the very end of the sequence with, as Jesus describes within um, Matthew chapter 24. So I think we have these things occurring on greater levels. Now we could maybe think about Daniel being related to some of these later sequences in a similar sort of manner. Maybe also think about the way that Daniel relates to Christ. He's already been related to Christ, I think, in the symbolism of chapter six, with the bringing of Daniel out of the lion's den, connecting with Christ's resurrection. Maybe we can think about the ways that he's related to other figures in a similar sort of logic. Mm. Who does Daniel see in verse 10? So as we go through the um, story, we've got this growing of the horn and going to the host of heaven. And I think it's worth remembering that behind all of this is a conflict within the heavens. It's one of the best ways to understand what's taking place within the book of Daniel, that as we see in the book of Revelation, what's taking place within the heavenly realm is affecting what's taking place in the earthly realm. And we have this conflict in the heavens and then the way that that's paralleled on earth. Behind all of this, there are angelic powers. So in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, you have, as we've discussed earlier, the demonic dragon. And then we have his mirror image in the sea beast. And then the sea beast has its own image in the land beast. And I think you have something similar here. The stars cast down, we can think about the stars cast down in chapter 12 of Revelation. These are ruling authorities. And here I think we should think about this as ruling authorities, but recognize behind all of that, that these are, there are also angelic powers at work. And stars within the book of Daniel, I think, connect that heavenly realm, not just earthly authorities. And we'll see that there are figures like the Prince of Persia and others that are in conflict here. And so although Persia as an earthly power is on the scene, behind that are heavenly powers in conflict. Yes, and so who, who does Daniel see in, in verse 10? So I think the, the horn that he sees is Antiochus. I think the, the rising of the horn is connected with the work of angelic powers. And then there's the casting down of authorities that are connected, for instance, with the priesthood, where these are elevated star-like figures. They're operating within the firmament of God's firmament of the temple and um, his people. And so they're being cast down, I think, is a sign of Antiochus's raising of himself up above his status. But again, there are angelic conflicts behind this. 
And so presumably he sees, does he see the Lord Jesus? Not at this point. Later on, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I would, I'd associate the figures that we see later on within the visions, uh, Michael particularly. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. Um, Christ but yeah I, I think the prince I, I, of the host I think more of as the um, yeah. the high priest yes uh, I think I think in the Jordan commentary I was reading uh, he sees it's Jesus as the the man appearing over the river and it's Gabriel who's talking to him I think that's how he divides it and then he later connects yes he later connects Jesus with Michael or Michael with yes mm. <laughs> so I, th- I think the the man who appears in his vision of the river is Jesus and then the one who explains things to him throughout is Gabriel mm. so we've already had an explaining angel back in chapter seven I think that's Gabriel and Gabriel is also appearing here but appearing by name as he didn't previously the way that he's described here is it here or is it the next one I think it's the next vision where he's described as the one who appeared to him previously mm. so he's connected as the interpreting angel between the visions yes, yes. of course this is the first appearance that we have of Gabriel by name. Mm, mm. We'll come on to talk about the connection between the Lord Jesus and Michael in subsequent podcasts. But what's, Alice, I wonder, before we leave the subject, what's the significance of the Lord Jesus appearing to Daniel over a river? Yes, we have a number of appearances next to rivers. So we have the Tigris appearance, we have the Uli appearance here, the Tigris appearance is in chapter 10, and the vision there is very clearly a vision that is similar to the Son of Man described in Revelation chapter 1. The vision here is one that is not so clear. I mean, it's a man's voice that he hears that tells Gabriel to go to him. The fact that he sees the Son of Man in chapter 7, he hears this figure here, he sees this glorious theophany in in chapter 10, it suggests and then, of course, you have the rising of Michael at the very end in chapter 12. It suggests that Christ is presiding over all of this. Mm. Christ is the one who's the one who's going to succeed as the, the son of man. He's going to take all the authority of the beasts. And so he's seeing an anticipation of the one who is the successor to all of these. And there's a sense that although he has not yet attained to that Um, He has not been given the throne. He is the one who's suited for it. And as we see all the beasts being overcome, we're seeing the Son of Man being involved in every single phase of that prior to him taking the kingdom himself. Mm, It's wonderful. Uh, Very, very rich. Last question, uh, Alistair. Why does Daniel fall into a deep sleep? And is this a sort of death and resurrection for Daniel? There are a number of descriptions of Daniel's responses to visions here and also in chapter 10, which suggest that Daniel, as he does in chapter 6, stands for the people in some sense. And so his slipping into a death-like sleep and then being raised up again suggests that he's standing for something about the condition of his people that they will experience. Now, you can imagine these are strange and and terrible and dreadful prophecies. These refer events to events many years in the future. We're talking about events that would be about over nearly 400 years after Daniel's time at this point. And it's worth thinking about us having, for instance, a vision of what's going to happen in the year um, 
2400. Um, what's going to take place then feels very distant and it feels scary to have that sort of um, far sight ahead. And so Daniel's response is, I think, first of all, a sense of the dreadfulness of what he's seeing and the awe-inspiring character, but also I think it's symbolic that it represents the people's situation and the way that he, as he is raised up, so the people will be raised up. Mm -hmm. And of course, it all points to the Lord Jesus and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We've talked about Daniel being a type of Christ often before on this podcast, and um, we'll continue to see that as we move forward. These are complex chapters, Alistair, aren't they, really? They are very complex. And I think it can help when we realise just how interconnected they are, that we're not expected to interpret this all by itself. If you have chapter 11, it unpacks a lot of the conflict between the, the different parts of the final creature. So we have the conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south is a conflict taking place within the goat. Earlier on, we've seen the, the bear and the leopard, and those correspond with the ram and the goat here. We've also seen the silver part of the image and the bronze part of the image. And again, those correspond. And when we read all of these alongside each other, it becomes slightly less puzzling. But yes, it is tough. While I've got you and for the last few minutes of this podcast, before we close, can I ask you about the what I think of as the premillennial dispensational views of Daniel? I know it's a massive and complex subject in itself, but reading and listening to you and reading James Jordan's commentary on Daniel, I find myself persuaded, totally persuaded by the the fact that uh, Daniel is all over effect, it's all over by AD 70 in effect. Why is there a need, why do some of the, uh, some theologians feel a need to push, push this book out well beyond AD 70 and, and into some future that we haven't yet reached? I think there are a number of reasons. I think a more charitable way of um, explaining some of their reasons would be that it just doesn't seem that the Son of Man has taken his full office yet. Now, I think there it's helpful to understand that there is a division between what takes place in the heavens and what takes place on the earth. We're looking for the full reality of what has been inaugurated in the heavens to be played out upon the earth. And the fact that it's been inaugurated in the heavens means that it's definitely going to take place on the earth. Also, we don't, it doesn't seem, have empires stopped? We still have empires, we have the sort of American dominance of the current age. We have British Empire before that. We have French and other sort of powerful empires as we go back in history that go all the way back to the time of Christ. So did the empires really stop when Christ came on the scene? And so those sorts of questions of plausibility, I think, are the big ones for people. And so there is this attempt to gerrymander the prophecy to fit to some future event that will explain why there's a big gap between the time of everything being wrapped up and the time that Daniel's living in. Mm. Now, it seems to me that that is unnecessary. I think it goes against the way that we re should read the book of Revelation. Revelation is an interpretation of Daniel in part, and I think a careful reading of the book of Revelation substantiates the claim that it refers primarily to the events of AD 70. Now, What's taking place, I think, is best understood as a sort of revolution in the heavens, described in most detail in chapter seven of the, the book. And once we've seen that at the heart of it, 
I think it helps us to understand why we do not yet see the full reality of that being played out. Christ has, however, ascended to God's right hand. The first great demonstration of that occurs in AD, AD 70. Christ has, himself treats that as the demonstration that he is at God's right hand. And that's the end of the old order. Again, it's important to remember that the world is not just this flat realm where everything is of equal significance. So what makes the biggest bang to our eyes is the most significant thing. Rather, we can see even in the character of Antiochus Epiphanes that he thinks he's fighting, as it were, on this great horizontal plane, but he ends up taking up arms against the stars of heaven, against God himself. And there's this heavenly conflict behind everything else. And so when Christ talks about the effect of his work, he speaks about Satan being cast down from heaven. And we have these other images of a revolution in heaven that helps us to understand that even if those things have not yet been fully re realized on earth, the heavenly order has been transformed. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The church is expanding. This is the stone that is expanding to fill the whole earth. And once that's in place, I think we begin to understand that the plausibility questions that people raise are not the defeaters that they think that they, that they are. And that the most natural reading of this is the one that, that it doesn't require any sort of pre-millennial dispensational gerrymandering to make the prophecy work. The prophecy works in its own terms. Mm. Yes, I, f I find this, this interpretation most persuasive. Alistair Roberts, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you. Thanks again. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.